Another big one I learned, like the hard way, because you just did a terrible job of this at the beginning, is like if you're an interview-based show, then relying on your guests to share the content out and setting that expectation really super clearly when you invite them on is a huge growth opportunity that a lot of folks give up on. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today, our guest is Craig Hewitt, who is the CEO of Castos. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad to have you here. Well, let's start at the very beginning here. Tell us a little bit for the listeners that don't know what Castos is and uh, how you came to, uh, to start it. Yeah, absolutely. So Castos is a podcast hosting and analytics platform. We've been in business for about five years. The predecessor before that was kind of a productized service business called Podcast Motor, which we've since kind of rolled into the Castos umbrella. It does kind of done for you podcast editing and production for about 85 customers right now. So all in all, I've been in the podcasting business and doing subscription-based revenue businesses for about seven years. Okay. So did you run a subscription business before that, or this has all been a part of podcasting? Yeah, all part of this entrepreneurial journey. I've, I've been in the background in sales, so totally unrelated, totally unrelated field. But like we saw the value of subscription kind of based stuff. I was in the medical field and sold a lot of disposable medical products uh, to cardiac units and hospitals. And so I was able to see like, hey, you get a client there or a customer there and they just keep buying stuff from you. So not exactly subscription, but you know, some kind of predictable recurring revenue. Yeah, definitely recurring for sure. Well, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit what led you to leave that field and come over to start this journey. In hindsight, I think it was probably a bit of a midlife crisis. I had, you know, my son was born in 2012 and I was on the road just traveling all the time and missed a bunch of, you know, big milestones in his first few years. And I was like, this is garbage and this is not like how I want to live. And was big into podcasting. I was like, you know, this seems cool and started a podcast of my own. And was like, wow, this is really hard, I think, which is what a lot of folks see now. This is before even tools like like Riverside and Descript and things like that. And so, yeah, it was just like, man, there's got to be a way to make money here. And you know, it turns out that doing post-production work still is a super valuable thing to do for folks. And that's how I got started with that business and had a chance to acquire a piece of software, which is the beginning of the Castos business. We acquired a WordPress plugin called Seriously Simple Podcasting. And that's how we kind of started the SaaS side of the business. About yeah, five years ago, we launched. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. How have you seen podcasting change? I mean, go back five years. It wasn't what it is today. So what have you seen you know, happen? Yeah. I mean, the obvious one is it's just so much more competitive, right? So again, technology has made it more accessible for a lot of folks. I think that simultaneously makes it better and worse or easier and harder for us as creators. Easier because it's just easier to create content, harder because there's so much more competition in the space now that for you to make a really good podcast and ultimately like this is for your brand, right? Whatever it's a personal brand or a business or or whatever, like you want to make an impact on some kind of end goal that isn't necessarily downloads, right? For most kind of, you know, B2B folks, um, the downloads is not the ultimate game. It's some kind of business impact. And so like, I think just being able to see that happen and kind of wade through the competition that we all have now is probably the biggest difference. You know, the tools and the technology and the hardware even is fantastic, but it's made standing out even harder, which is cool because it just means that people that are great and really great content can stand out in just a larger audience overall. If you look at the total podcast listening audience, it's going up, you know, quite a bit all the time. So the onus is on us as creators to create really good stuff. For sure. Do you see the B2B podcasting space fundamentally different from B2C and in what ways? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying is like the goal of the podcast, right? Like in a B2B sense, like maybe it's a little bit of branding. You know, if you think about Drift as like in the SaaS world, it's like the ultimate. I think an example of that is like they probably podcast just for brand equity, not necessarily to get a bunch of customers, but just to be able to share how they think about a bunch of business related things with kind of the greater SaaS and tech audience. And that's fantastic. And then they got to kind of loosely draw like the ROI back to the business somehow from there. And that's hard to do. And that's a little fuzzy. And that probably can only happen with like funded or like more established businesses in a B2C kind of environment. Like the end game is downloads, right? Because you're probably directly monetizing your podcast with ads or paid subscriptions. And so just eyeballs or eardrums uh, is is like the end game. And there's not this kind of connection back to some sort of business goal in B2C podcasting, which is why just different genres like true crime are so much more successful in a real kind of B2C consumer environment. Yeah. Those metrics are a lot more concrete there, huh? Where you can you can see the downloads, you can see the, the engagement and things like that, where you know, creating a brand and content around the brand and kind of what that generates downstream in front of whether you're just seeking out brand recognition or you're actually looking for direct clients and revenue, like tracking that becomes a heck of a lot harder, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for those going down this B2B path, like what they should be paying attention to? Yeah. First, like when we work with clients in our our kind of launch services, the first thing we say is like, not to say we don't want to work with you if you're only going to do 10 episodes, but it's just unfair, right? Like it's unfair for you to go through the trouble of learning all this stuff and getting the gear and investing your time and mental energy in this if you're only going to do 10 episodes. And so we really say like, you should plan on doing this for a year before you even look at your analytics dashboard and try to make any kind of business decision about like whether this is working or not. It just takes... You know, if you're doing an episode a week, it takes those 50 episodes for you to learn how to be a podcaster, learn what your audience wants, learn what resonates with them, and then start being a little more constructive about like what to do then. You know, just kind of we tell our, a lot of our customers like, hey, commit to this and put the blinders on, right? And don't worry about it. It's like, you know, being on a diet, right? It's like, don't step on the scale for the first month, just stick to the diet. And I think that doing that lets them not worry about the future as much, but worry about the present and say like, how can I create really good content? How can I focus on executing this stuff? And I think that's where we see folks be more successful is they're not worried about the future as much as they're worried about today. And what can I do to create great content and use this as like a content marketing piece for my business? So I think that's like the first thing. And the second thing is like, if you're a business, you should not think that you're going to directly monetize your podcast. And that's probably obvious to a lot of folks, but like you shouldn't sell ads, right? In your podcast, if it's a B2B kind of thing, right? The thing you're selling is your business, right? And you're going to get leads and trial signups and these kind of things. And so just kind of not thinking like your NPR or Gimlet Media, right? But think like, okay, I'm going to do this podcast so I can share kind of how I think about our industry with the audience. I'm also going to do this podcast to network with a bunch of other people in my space. And I think that's like the untold thing in podcasting. Maybe it's less untold than it used to be is for B2B folks, like the ability to network is one of the huge advantages of podcasting, right? Because you're having a conversation with someone that you probably can't have an hour long conversation with just because you want to, but because you're offering some value to them of, you know, I'm on this podcast sharing what I think about podcasting and subscriptions. And that's a huge value to me, right? So I say yes to let's have this podcast. Uh, there's not a lot of other ways that folks can do that to a, an audience of peers that they don't know very well. I'm curious to get your perspective on how you strike the right balance here, because the early advice that we got when we started this podcast was 
again, similar to that, great way to network, great way to meet potential clients, you know, is to have these conversations. And I've listened to other B2B podcasts that certainly can come across like one person trying to sell the other person something. <laughs> and so do anyone not part of that conversation, um, you know, they're, sometimes it's hard to derive any value from that. So what's your philosophy on how to make sure that you're still producing a good podcast that listeners will find valuable, but yet still striking that balance with maybe some of those other goals? Yeah. I mean, I think this has happened to us more than a couple of times. One, just because like I have 500 episodes under my belt. We have a podcast that I think is pretty successful in the podcasting space and big YouTube channel and all this kind of stuff. And what ends up happening is when we go out to partner with someone or even hiring, like that's another thing that like a lot of companies don't think about is like your podcast and your digital presence is your CV, right? As a brand. And for me personally, because I'm the CEO of the company. And so when we go to try to hire someone, and this happened to us recently, we went to try to hire this really senior developer. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And he knew me and he knew our podcast. And so it was so easy to say like, hey man, let's do this. And he was on board you know, as soon as we posted the job posting. And we see this with like industry partners is you know, we might go to someone and say, Hey, like, let's collaborate on this thing. And they say, Yeah, cool. I see all the stuff you're doing. I see the podcast you put out. I see your YouTube channel. I see your blog content. I see your product. You know, it's a natural fit. I don't have to sell myself and my values because I've done that every week, right? In the content that we put out there. And it's not just a one to one thing, right? I don't have to have this one conversation with this one industry partner. I'm able to create this for us, like, what I think is an enormous body of content and hopefully a bunch of people in our space know it and know me and know our brand because of that. And then opens these doors to kind of a bunch of different opportunities that we have uh, from there. All, how have you 500 episodes? Congratulations. That's pretty amazing. We're 80 now and I, it's far past where I ever thought we'd, we'd go with this. So. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel accomplished with 80, but 500, my goodness. How have you evolved it going from episode one all the way up to 500? Is anything different now than when you started? Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious one is like, I'm not nervous anymore, right? Because I just that you click go and you're on. <laughs> yep. Riverside has this five, four, three, two, one. And I'm like, okay, that's like intimidating for new people. Like I, <laughs> you know, the one in that vein, one of the things I've learned and learned it pretty early on, but I think it's a really good tip for beginner podcasters is like, this will be edited, right? Even if you're going to put the video on YouTube, you probably won't edit that as much as you would audio. But if I mess up or my kids barge in the door right now or something, it's cool, right? Just stop. And it can usher my kids out or answer their question or do whatever. If I have a coughing fit because I just had COVID, it's okay, right? Like it's not live. I'm not on stage. It's a podcast or it's a video and we can edit it. And it's fine if it's imperfect. In an interview-based show, giving your guests that grace to say like, hey, we're going to edit this. If you mess up, just stop, take a sip of water and start that whole kind of thought again. In post-production, the team will edit that out. Like that's a really big one because it puts me as a host or my guests at ease Okay, we don't have to nail this the first time. Yeah, another big one I learned like the hard way because you just did a terrible job of this at the beginning is like if you're an interview based show, then relying on your guests to share the content out and setting that expectation really super clearly when you invite them on is a huge growth opportunity that a lot of folks give up on because they don't want to be a jerk. <laughs> they don't want to say, hey, come on my podcast and I expect you to share this out on social media in an email newsletter and on your site, if you could, please. They don't want to ask that. And like, I have a sales background, so maybe I'm just more okay with asking folks for stuff. But like I say, hey, I'm going to have you on my podcast. We have 5,000 listeners and they're going to hear what you have to say for an hour. The least you can do is share this out when it goes live. 
I think it's a totally fair ask of almost any situation. And if you don't do it up front, right, when you're inviting someone on, the person's not going to do it when you send them that email later. So set the expectation up front and then follow through that with like a good, well-organized email and template and kind of like media kit so that you're not asking the guest to do a bunch of freaking work <laughs> to share your stuff out. So give them the audiogram or the quote card, send them the little snippet in a tweet or something like that so that it makes their job easier. Makes it easier for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, I mean, the other one that like is just is like the most important is just consistency, right? So like in your 80 episodes, like you got to publish them consistently. It doesn't have to be every week. It doesn't have to be twice a week. It can be once a month even, but just do it on the same cadence all the time because it's a zero sum game for your listeners, right? They only have six hours of podcast listening in their week. And if you flake out for two months, they're going to replace you with someone else. And when you come back those two months later, they're going to be like, whatever, man, Nick like isn't serious about this. So I'm not going to take him seriously. Yeah. It's been surprising to me. Like I can't always see, in fact, I can't see who's on the other end of those downloads, you know, the listens to your episode. But I've gone to conferences and ran into people and they were like referencing some episode of a podcast. And I was like, I would have never expected you to be someone who was, you know, tuning in and listening. But, you know, it's fascinating. It does open up a lot of doors and has some unexpected benefits that certainly when I got into it, I was not expecting. Yep. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, one other thing that's been really surprising to me or just another benefit that I didn't expect to get out of doing all of these episodes was talking to all these founders and people that run subscription businesses is hearing what their you know lessons learned, their journey, their obstacles that they might be facing today affected our product roadmap. Like I got to see what their problems were and interview so many people like probably any good product manager was would do and then incorporate those things into our product was something that seems obvious now. But back then, I just didn't expect it kind of going into it. But that's been... I don't know, something that's just been extremely valuable to me for sure. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. It makes, I mean, I've not heard that before, but it makes a ton of sense, right? Like you hear these folks who are going to go start a new business in an industry they don't know really well doing all this kind of customer discovery stuff. And those are hard phone calls to get, right? Hey, random business owner, can I interview about like what the biggest problem you're having at your gym is? Like nobody's going to take that call, right? But like, hey, I'm starting a podcast about like leading gym owners and how they grow their bottom line. Yeah, sure. A bunch of people are going to to talk to you because it's free PR for their gem. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So has your business been subscription right from the get-go? And do you offer any of your services a la carte? Yeah, this is interesting. It has been subscription from the very beginning, both like with our services and with the hosting. Yeah, we've been subscription all along. We have a couple of kind of slightly different flavors of that. Like we have some add-on services that are variable each month, right? Based on usage. And we have kind of just recently, like, so within our services, we help folks launch a podcast, right? So you come to us and say, hey, Craig, y'all are like industry leading knowledge, been doing this for umpteen years. We'd love for you just to tell us exactly what to do. And so we offer that as a service. And that's cool because it helps podcasters get off on the right foot, but it is not recurring revenue necessarily. It's kind of chunky revenue, right? So it's like, hey, we're going to sell this thing and we're going to work with you for two months. And then like you probably will roll into our ongoing services afterwards, and that is the expectation. But it's been interesting from like a business operations perspective to go from like purely subscription across the board to adding on a little of this chunkiness, right? Of kind of one time. It is entirely one time. Like they could roll into recurring revenue afterwards. But if someone pays us $10,000 today, they're not going to pay us $10,000 next month or the month after. They might pay us $800. And so... 
Yeah, that's been interesting. Like you kind of have to discount that one-time revenue a little bit when you're doing things like budgeting and planning, as opposed to like, you know how like a, a true subscription services, like it's a hundred percent predictable. You have churn or you have new customers and that's the math. So yeah, that's been interesting to learn. Well, especially with those chunky services that you're referring to there, you know, those often take a lot of labor to deliver too, right? You know, to get a new podcast up and running. How have you been able to kind of manage the ebbs and flows of that demand alongside your subscription services? Yeah, I mean, I think the only way we've been able to do that is that the subscription part is so easy, right? Like, especially with software, right? You build a software once and a bunch of people use it in all the same ways. And the only air quotes, because it's not a small thing, but the only thing you have to do is support the customers, right? And customer support and success, and then build new features and improve the ones you have. But you don't have to help the actual implementation of the podcast because that's what software does. Yeah, with the services, we're fortunate to have a really great team that handles most all of that. But yeah, that is people doing work and not computers. And so it ultimately comes down to processes and communication and expectations and a lot of tools to do all of those and optimize them and create a really great customer experience. But um, yeah, it's just a different world. It's almost like running two businesses. It really is. My business is in the exact same boat. I mean, we do a whole lot of professional services, both to deploy our software that then does produce the recurring revenue, but a lot of other just one-time you know, help them with the transition, maybe do a vendor RFP or something like that. But again, for us, staffing those ebbs and flows and spreading out the project so that you're not overloaded one month and then looking for things to do the next one is always a big challenge. But I'll tell you, like, I think that it's something that a lot of pure play SaaS folks kind of frown at, right? They're like, not going to get involved. I'm not going to talk to customers. I'm just going to build a product and people are going to come magically find me and use my thing. And it's all sunshine and rainbows. The problem is... Literally every time we sell our software to a big company, they buy our services too. Every time. Because what you're doing when you're selling software is you're selling a part of the solution that a big company needs. Because they don't have the ability like you and I do because we're small businesses to just figure it out. Right? They don't have like super entrepreneurial, for the most part, right? Super entrepreneurial folks on their team who can read the seven blog posts and watch a couple of YouTube videos and figure out how to podcast. They need a professional person to tell them how to do it, right? Or how to implement the new software or whatever it is. And so what we found is like, and I think this is a model that will continue into the future. And you've seen it a little bit recently, like in the SaaS space with a couple of big exits and ProfitWell is the one that comes to mind for me, $200 million, right? Like that started as an agency and then into a productized service and they built software. And in the end, they were doing a little bit of all of those. I don't know what the breakdown of revenue is, but it's not terribly important because like, I think offering the services into whatever kind of tolerance you have, you know, as a business person, and if you're a tech person and you don't want to offer a lot of services, that's fine. But just know that that you're going to be giving up a little bit of upside with your customer if you're only offering one side of that coin. It's also tough to look at some of those big ticket SOWs for those professional services and ever turn away from that, right? It's like, but you got to find that right balance too, because that does take a lot of labor and effort to deliver compared to that predictable cash flow that the ongoing software or the subscriptions will provide, right? So again, balancing act, try to find out what works or what you can support and what works best for your type of business, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we say no to a good bit of folks who come to us and say, hey, I want you to just do this or I want to do this kind of podcast. You know, I want to do a true crime podcast. We're not the best person to help you there. We do B2B interview-based shows or you know panel shows. We don't do true crime docu-series kind of things just because that's not our wheelhouse. We'd love to share contact information with a few of our, our friends in the industry, but that's not what we do. And that's the only way we've found 
to be able to continue to offer a relatively similar product service, you know, to our, you know, services customers without reinventing the wheel every time. Cause we're not an agency and I don't want to be an agency. I want to be a service that does about the same thing for this one type of customer. And we do it really well. Did you start that way from the beginning, like pure B2B and turning everything else away? Or you kind of did both for a while and then turned down that path? No, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was whatever you want me to be, I'm happy to help. And it was terrible. And you learn the hard way, right? You learn that yeah, okay. you are not meeting customer expectations because they want something that you can't do. And that's really hard and they get really upset and you get really upset. But now, yeah, we're really quick to say we're not the right fit. I'm sorry. And we say that in the sales process, right? Like, hey, I'd love to help you. You're happy to spend your money here, but this is not for you. Like what we do is not right for what you're looking for. And I think it must feel really good to be in a spot where you can actually do that though. Yeah. I mean, the customers really respect that, right? They say, wow, thanks for not leading me on and sending me down a path that would end up in all of us just being frustrated. Yeah. I think it's a real important thing for, for any, and maybe especially if you're just getting started, right? Because like if you're just getting started and you try to be everything for everyone, you're not focusing on your ideal customer at all. And I think that just distracts you so much from building a business that's scalable and repeatable and you can take yourself out of, right? Because like 100% without fail, the times where I have to get involved in like delivering a service or like being on the front line of something with a customer, because we do have a team, right? Like we do have a team that does the actual kind of implementation and manages customer communications and expectations stuff. 100% when I have to get involved in that directly is when it's outside of the bounds of what we do normally. Because we've solved for like the standard kind of use case and customer and thing that we deliver. Let's talk about how you are acquiring new customers, new podcasts today. Like what channels are you going through to find those that are... And is it a process of mostly educating them on the value of podcasts and getting them to start one? Or is it you're only going after people who are in the market? They know this is something that they need and want to do and therefore are looking for a vendor. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I posted about this on LinkedIn today. I think that... So we acquire... Almost all of our customers through inbound and a little bit of referrals. But we've done content marketing for years and are, are very fortunate to have a lot of kind of SEO juice behind our site and just have a bunch of articles <laughs> there that people find us and sign up for our services either on the hosting side or the services side through content marketing and you know word of mouth and referrals. And I think that probably is the answer for most small businesses. I think there are some exceptions to that where people acquire new customers through outbound email. I think that's just getting harder all the time through conferences. Maybe that's the one that like, that's just not our world, but I know it is, especially the more B2B you get, you know, going to conferences is a really big deal for some companies I know. But yeah, we've done content marketing and SEO and inbound for so long and it's gotten us where we are today. And I think, you know, what's interesting is like, I think... It gets harder because you do the easy stuff first, right? You acquire this kind of group of customer, this particular type or whatever. And then like that, that channel is saturated or that kind of part of that channel is saturated. And then you got to move to like the next level or iteration of that. And that's where it just gets a little bit harder. And, but I think that like we have thousands of customers and all of them have come through inbound marketing. I think we have at least like three times as many as we have now before that channel is saturated. And we have to go, you know, figure something else out. I think there's just so much room to grow. And it usually is a lot more than you think it is. So specifically, is this like the content you guys are publishing to LinkedIn on your own website? And then are you doing, is it all SEO? Or are you doing paid ad search? Like kind of combination of all of those things? Yeah. So it's, we don't do any paid acquisition right now. Uh, we've played around with it, couldn't get it to work. 
in a cost-effective manner, right? It always works, but, but you end up losing your shirt uh, over it. Yeah, it's, you know, we write a lot of blog content and have a lot of just other kind of non-blog written content on our sites, comparison articles and things like that. We have a prolific podcast and YouTube channel and we do a little bit of social media. It's the one place that like, I'm not a big social media person. And as I run marketing, like just, it's not my thing, but I know that it is something we should do more of and do better. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, like I just think we have so much more kind of meat on that bone, right? Of content marketing and inbound. That's where I'd rather focus my work. And, you know, at some point we'll probably bring someone on to do social media just because it's not me. So the average new client then is going online, knowing that they need to start a podcast, starting to do some searches and poking around in places like that, might come across some of your content and go, oh, these guys are, are one of the experts in this space. Yeah. And I think that works because like all we're having to do is convince them that we're the solution that they're looking for. They already, you know, there's this thing of like, I'm problem aware, I'm solution aware. And there's a couple of other like steps there. Right. But somebody goes from like, oh, I'm going to think about a podcast to, oh, I should start a podcast to how the heck do I start a podcast? And then, oh, I need a hosting company. Um, when they get to that stage, they're going to evaluate us versus a, just, I mean, a couple, whatever, handful of different options. And like, that's the only battle we have to win. As opposed to if you're doing outbound, you start way the heck over there, right? And say like, hey, company, you need to dedicate all these resources and time and mental energy to a podcast. Oh, and we're the best service and a bunch of steps in between there. So I think that like, that's why inbound works so well is that people are already ready to like buy your stuff. And you just have to get in front of them at the right time. Things like outbound prospecting, cold outreach, and even paid is a little closer, right? Because paid search, people are looking for that thing. And you're just showing up at the top of that list. Um, the tough thing is just making the numbers work. Theoretically looking for it. Well, and, and getting that ad with a keyword in front of somebody who actually has an intent to buy and isn't actually looking for something else entirely or tangential to what you do, that's a challenge, right? With cost per click, what it is right now, anybody who's clicking on your ad that isn't a target customer is going to cause you to use your words, lose your shirt. Yeah, for sure. And I think I mean, for us specifically, like we have a relatively low average ARPU, like average revenue per user. And so it's just tough to make that math work. You know, if we're selling a $200 a month thing, easier. Well, so talk us through what it takes to bring a client on board from the time that they're like, okay, I want to work with you guys. Like, what does that process look like? Is it a, is it a lengthy process or is it something that's kind of self-serve? Like, what does that look like on average? Yeah. On the hosting side, it's entirely self-serve. So folks come to the site, they say, yep, I want to sign up for a free trial. We offer a 14-day trial, no credit card. They just put in their name and email address and they get 14 days to use the platform as much as they'd like. Within that time, hopefully we show them that it's an awesome tool. And they're like, we encourage them in a lot of like non-product podcast related things because that's the challenge. It's a challenge of ours. And I don't know how universal that is to other, to other pieces of software, but like to get value from Castos, you have to do work. You have to record this episode and then you have to edit it and you have to then publish it to Castos. And then you have to like market your podcast and grow it so that it's making a difference for your brand. And so there's a lot of things that customers need to do outside of our tool to get value out of using our tool. And so we do a lot of education with our customers for them to be successful in general. And we're just like, a you know, our software is just a part of that. So that's, I don't know that it's our biggest challenge, but it's definitely a thing that we focus on is like, hey, how can we help you be more successful in general, in this realm. And our software is one part of that. And hopefully we take a bunch of friction away from like the publishing and distribution, you know, part of it. But there's other stuff that you have to do that, that we can help with from education or from a services perspective. So once they're, they're in, 
Are you guys taking them through uh, how to continue to grow and educate them along the way? Like, And I assume that's a pretty good retention tactic right there too, right? The more that they're using it, the more that they're engaged, the more likely they are to stay, right? Yeah, for sure. And there's stuff in the product and there's stuff that we deliver via email. We have like an entirely free academy. So academy.castles.com. It's like this giant library of how to podcast content. So yeah, it's just, we do a ton and everything we can to help folks be be better podcasters and stick around for a long time because that's just great for them and it's great for the business. Are you looking at metrics like how often they are creating episodes? Because going back to what you were talking about earlier, if you see somebody that's got typically had been posting every week and all of a sudden is having like four, six, eight week gap, they could be trailing off pretty soon, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, we look at how active people are on the platform in general, how often they're publishing new episodes, you know, how those episodes and podcasts are performing in terms of analytics. We're going to be getting into like ad tech advertising technology to help folks monetize their podcasts. Like, hey, how is this performing for you? How much money are you making? You know, the more money people make, the more likely they are to stick around and grow as customers. Yeah, we have quite a bit of product analytics that that show us who's the most active and not surprisingly, like they stick around longest. And so it's an interesting thing. Like we we simultaneously want to bring up the folks who are not as engaged to have them be more engaged and publish more. And then the folks who are already publishing a lot and already really engaged, how do we kind of just give them room to grow within the platform? So that's things like different tools, more power within the platform so they can be more successful than they already are. Almost give a path for every client to go up a level, right? What about on the churn side? I mean, I guess given the number of clients that you've got, you can directly reach out if someone is you know, potentially leaving, but are you running into issues related to billing and collecting? So kind of more of that involuntary churn, or is this more of a, hey, I tried podcasting, I'm not seeing the ROI and I'm moving on. So more of that direct churn. Yeah. I mean, like it, the, we were very fortunate, very low churn. And I think it's been the thing that's allowed us to grow as we have. The churn we have is almost entirely, yeah, hey, I stopped my podcast. It didn't work out. I'm going to leave. You know, one of the interesting things about being a hosting provider is like, even if you stop your podcast, a lot of folks stay on as customers because they want it to still be available, right? Because, you know, it is like if you cancel your account, your podcast just disappears because we can't host a podcast forever, you know, for free. So it's not just like, are you publishing new stuff? But do you want the stuff that is already there to be accessible to listeners? So that's been interesting. I think that one thing that from a churn perspective, is a really big opportunity for SaaS businesses is expansion revenue, right? So the same number of customers pays you more money in total in a given month. That has been difficult for us because kind of just the nature of the business, it's not commonly accepted to to pay like you would a MailChimp or a ConvertKit or a CRM tool or something like that, where the more listens you have or the more podcasts you have, you're willing to pay more money. It's just not as accepted in the industry. We introduced this concept of like tiers of pricing based on downloads and they're really super generous. And like the vast majority of our customers fall in our lowest plan with that consideration. But that's the thing that like if I had one gripe about our business, it is that it's not inherently set up for expansion revenue because it is just the magic, right? It's just if you don't get any new customers, but they grow their you know subscriber count, they pay you more money. That's because then you have like customer acquisition and expanding revenue of your existing customers. 
both working for you if you're doing things right. And we get mostly just the first part of that. Just new customers contribute to our growth for the most part. How many of your customers, like you offer multiple plans, right? Different features and functionality within these plans. How often do they move between them? And we do a bit of like feature gating and usage gating. So I was talking about like the number of downloads you have. That's like the usage gate. And then we have some features that are only available in our higher plans. Yeah. So so with your existing client base, then your opportunity to expand revenue is either convince them they need more features and to move up, or have you ever done just across the board price point increases? And has that worked? We haven't done price increases in a long time. And with inflation being what it is, like it's interesting to think about just because everything we do is more expensive, but people aren't paying us more. Yeah. So I think that when we have done it, it's been received pretty well because it's been pretty small, you know, on the order of like 20%, which I don't think is a huge price increase. And it's been years, like several years since we've done one. I think that folks who do price increases poorly is when they don't communicate and don't communicate the value of that. Like, hey, for an extra $10 a month, you're going to get this and this and this and this. And you've already had this for the last year. We just haven't charged you for it. And so now like we need to start kind of charging what our product is worth now because it's so much better than it was a year ago. And I think SaaS companies probably do a poor job of this compared to more traditional businesses. You know, traditional businesses are increasing prices every year and everyone else is okay with it, right? Like my energy bill goes up all the time and like, what am I going to do? So yeah, I don't know if that will change here in the future and if inflation will, will create an environment where people are just used to that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there, you know, especially for B2B, inflation is everywhere, right? And costs are going up. Your costs have certainly gone up. And so for a B2B who isn't obviously coming out of their direct pocket, you know, they're probably going to be more receptive to that. So do you think that creates an environment that creates opportunity for increases? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that's one place where our, like, I wouldn't call us a B2B company necessarily. I would call us like B to prosumer probably to where we have a bunch of hobbyists. A lot of them make some money through their podcast and their brand. And we have a lot of businesses, but we also have a lot of folks that just do it for fun. You know, they're talking about the Green Bay Packers, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever. And that's cool. And that's awesome. But $5 extra a month, if it's your hobby, is like not insignificant. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, are all is everyone paying you on credit card? Do you accept different payment methods and any challenges there? Yeah, it's all Bitcoin. Oh, okay. These days, no. <laughs> so, big, big roller coaster ride. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, that would be... Oh, man, I'd lose my mind. Uh, no, yeah. Everything is credit card. Uh, we do have some of our enterprise customers that pay us with ACH, but those are all yearly subscriptions. That's nice. Lower cost payment method. And they're giving you a whole year in advance. So got to love those, right? Yeah. Well, what are... Are there any new big features or big changes for you coming down the pike uh, soon? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing that we see in the industry is kind of the advent and the increased popularity of private podcasting and paid subscriptions, right? So previous to two years ago, the only way to make money podcasting is to have a bunch of ads that are garbage, right? (laughs) In your podcast and you're selling mattresses right next to your B2B podcast, you know, about, you know, whatever your business is about. And that's just a bad experience, right? For everybody, right? The mattress company doesn't have any idea about attribution or anything like that. And you as a creator feel slimy about contaminating your content with this other kind of messaging, right? And so, but it's the only way to make money up until a couple of years ago. And now us in a very small number of participants in our space realize that there is a really cool opportunity for creators to sell access to their content directly. And so private podcasting is 
we believe like the real future of podcasting for the creators, right? And the creator economy is massive. You look at any numbers of kind of industry reports, it's the fastest growing part of like the digital economy. And that's where we're standing is we believe that like creators being able to charge money for their content is the future of monetization of podcasting. And we're doing our damnedest to be at the forefront of that. Well, what then sort of content do you think leans best towards that model? Because of course, you say something like that and everybody's going to go, shit, I'd love to make you know money off of my podcast directly, but you know, not everybody's going to pay for that. So where do you think that works well? You mean like what kind of content are people able to charge money for? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the most common kind of model there is a hybrid of you have a bunch of free content and then you have a select that's paid, right? So maybe it's like I have four episodes a month, three of them are free. And if you want the extra awesome fourth one, you got to pay five bucks a month. On the, on the writing side, you see tools like Substack that have popularized this quite a bit and they have a similar model, right? You can have an entirely free one and you can have a paid one and authors will just say, hey, I'm going to publish this piece. I'm going to make it all free, you know, and that goes to everybody. And hey, if you want access to the extra special one that I put out once a month, you got to pay five bucks a month. And what we're doing is podcast version of that. Interesting. Okay. So is that feature available now or that's something that you guys are working on? Sure is. Yep. Cool. Well, for the producers that are looking to do that, like what's the steps for them kind of bring that to market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think that like there's a lot of kind of content strategy that, that goes along with that's a whole nother conversation. But I mean, technically we use Stripe as a payment processor to partner with. And so you bring your Stripe account and connect it to Castos and you say like, hey, I want to create this product in Stripe. It's five bucks or 10 bucks a month. And we have what we call our automations engine. It's kind of like a Zapier that we've built within our product. Say like when somebody purchases this product, add them to this private podcast. And so within your Castos account, you'd have a public podcast that you'd use for marketing. So the show would be hosted under it. And then you create a private podcast that's separate. And only when somebody purchases this product in your Stripe account, do they get added to this private podcast and all that happens automatically. And then if they cancel that subscription to your $10 a month, super awesome private podcast, they get removed from the private podcast feed. And those feeds are unique to that individual, right? So if Bob leaves, Bob doesn't get access to my podcast anymore, but Susie still does. Absolutely. So do those listeners who paid for the premium content then need to come to your platform to access it? Or because how would they do that through any of the other podcasting platforms? Yeah. So we give options, right? So you can either download the Castos mobile app. So we have a mobile app that's available for iOS and Android. Download it, log in. You get all of the private podcast content platform-wide from our platform that you're eligible to see. So if you're a subscriber to private podcasts from you know, multiple different creators. You see all that in one place. Or as you're invited to a new private podcast, we send you an email and say, hey, here's your private RSS feed link. That's unique to you and to this podcast. And you can copy that and paste it into Overcast or, you know, Pocket Cast or whatever kind of third-party mobile app on your phone that supports manually adding an RSS feed because things like Spotify don't because Spotify is like the walled garden of podcasting, right? They don't want people to come from outside and use any of their stuff, which is fine. Like I can't fault them too much for that. But it's the cool thing about podcasting is, you know, open RSS is a really cool, powerful platform and kind of modality. The hard thing is that it is open and you just have to kind of embrace that if, if that's the direction you go. Craig, this has been a very interesting conversation. Uh, love hearing about, you know, what that's like on the other side of this. I'm sitting here as a creator and someone who's got a podcast and don't always get to see like the industry behind it, you know? So having these sort of conversations is always fascinating for me. Yeah. Well, for any of the listeners who want to learn more about cast or maybe follow up on any of the things we talked about today, where can they go? Yeah. So castos.com, C-A-S-T-O-S.com. 
Uh, check us out there. Yeah, I think, you know, if you want to see some of the stuff we do, our YouTube channel, so youtube.com slash Castos, really prolific. Matt from our team puts out, you know, something really awesome there pretty much every week. Yeah, that's the place to check us out. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Thanks again. Wonderful learning about everything again today and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.